We need each other. We need each other. Over the past few weeks, as I prepared this message, I became convinced of this simple truth more than you could possibly ever know. We need each other. What exactly do I mean by that? Well, I think, friends, that the church, the corporate church and the local church, the church is beginning to look an awful lot like the world in one way in particular. That is in the way of polarization. Polarization. Now, if you look at the media, if you look at social media, you'll see liberals versus conservatives. You'll see Republicans versus Democrats. Polarized, being pushed further and further apart. Now, this tendency, this feature of our culture, is threatening to enter the church. Polarization. I see liberal Christians versus conservative Christians pushed further and further apart. Now, let me just unpack those terms, those descriptors, because we often hear them, but rarely are they discussed. So, to be a liberal or conservative, yes, refers to politics or can refer to politics, but that political position is is a symptom of a more fundamental, a more fundamental way of viewing reality at times. Sometimes there can be a clash, but often it's it's gesturing towards a way of viewing the world. So let me unpack this a little bit. The English word liberal comes from the Latin liber or libertas, liberalis. It means having to do with freedom. Uh, Typically in English it has to do with Someone who's very open to new ideas, new ways of thinking about things, reaching toward the future. We think of innovation, pioneers, deconstructing the establishment, established norms, tradition, things like that. We have people who, in Christianity at least, don't have a hard time integrating the findings or trends of the culture into their faith. There's an openness, a a freedom, liberal. On the other hand, we have the word conservative, which comes from the Latin verb conservo, and means to preserve, to hold intact, to keep safe, secure. Now, this type of thinking often identifies real goods in human civilization that need to be preserved and passed on to the next generation. Often this type of thinking sees the more liberal uh, type of thinking as as threatening the the preservation of these ideals. So this, this other side maybe isn't as open to deconstructing and, and criticizing and reinventing the wheel. They try to, to preserve and hold dear that which is good. These groups 
whether they manifest themselves politically or not, but these ways of thinking in the church are being pushed further and further apart. I see some of my friends saying, you know, if they would just become like us, all of these issues would go away. Or should we just become like them? Is that what we're supposed to do? Well, I think we need each other. I'm just going to let that sit for a moment. This, I think, is the meaning of the text that we're going to look at this morning. And it is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. This passage is Paul's written response to an actual question sent to him by the Corinthians, a real social issue they were facing for which they needed Paul's advice. And we're going to talk about the specifics of the issue in a moment, but the questions that I think they were asking are very relevant to our cultural moment. Things like, how do we relate to each other, Paul, given our vastly differing positions and ways of thinking? Should, should they just become like us? Or ought we to become like them? What do you think, Paul? Take a, take a side. Paul responds to their question in 1 Corinthians 8 in a way that is utterly, utterly breathtaking. You need each other is effectively what Paul says. We need each other, friends. And if we can accept this truth, if we can live it, the possibilities for this body, this local body, will be endless. I'm talking endless. So that's the truth I'd like to explore in 25 minutes this morning. We'll figure it all out together. Not really. But before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, we trust you. We, we seek you. We need you. Lord, I pray that you'd guide us this morning as we explore this passage, as we discern your heart, the heart of Jesus in this passage. Help us on this warm Sunday morning to encounter the living God and to leave this place utterly transformed. We love you and we praise you. Pray that you'd be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you haven't been with us, we have transitioned to part two of our Great Commission series, Mike and I. And so for the first six or so months of this year, we studied the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and we, we, did, we watched them as they did ministry in the Mediterranean world. So now in the second leg of this series, we're going to be looking at the Pauline epistles, so the letters written by the Apostle Paul to a number of the churches that he planted throughout his ministry. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians. Now, so far, we've looked at 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica, and those were thought to be the first letters that he actually wrote. And so this morning and next week and the next, 
we'll be looking at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, thought by some to be the next letters Paul wrote. And so I have a map for us this morning. It's helpful to situate this geographically. It's kind of small. Um, But if you see that red arrow, uh, which is on the left for you, that is pointing to Corinth. Corinth. And now Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, or Greece. Corinth was the capital, not Athens at this time. And as you can see the line uh, above it, Paul had traveled to Thessalonica, where he had to leave because of persecution. And then he continues to go south, ultimately heading towards Antioch, far, far in the east. And so he gets on a boat and travels south. And after preaching in Athens, the Areopagus sermon, he arrives at Corinth. Well, we heard from our scripture reader in Acts 18, describing Paul's establishment of the church at Corinth. He arrived there, and it says that he spent 18 months, or a year and a half, in this very metropolitan city. He met a a wonderful couple from Rome. They were Jews, Priscilla and Aquila. And like he did in Thessalonica, he he worked the trades in Corinth. He was a tent maker. And so he did ministry in the synagogue with the local Jews, but but was met with, with resistance from them. And so most of the converts in Corinth, it seems came from Paul's ministry uh, during the workday, you could say, among the Gentile artisans, craft workers, and fellow tent makers in Corinth. And so Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half, establishes the church, and then he leaves, and a number of things happen. So as you can see, uh, he goes across to the east to Ephesus, and it seems that after Paul left, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. This is a letter we no longer possess. In response to that letter, the Corinthians send Paul a letter asking about a litany of issues that they were facing after he left. Paul then responds to that letter with an elaborate set of answers to their questions. Technically, the second letter he wrote, but for us, it is 1 Corinthians. After this, we get some more uh, visits and letters. We have 2 Corinthians. And scholars debate about exactly how many letters or visits, etc. All that is to say, Paul's dealings with the Corinthians featured in-person visits, letters, responses, and it seems more in-person visits at the end. So his dealings with them were quite complicated. Okay. Now we can move to the next slide. We'll zoom in to see Roman Corinth. So this is Corinth in the first century. This is the best map I could find, no colors, I'm sorry. But as we can see, Corinth is situated in between two harbors. So there's a harbor to the north towards Italy, and then there's a harbor to the southeast toward Asia, Cancrea. That was pretty rare for a city to be between two harbors like that. And so Corinth in the ancient world was very wealthy and prospered economically. Corinth also uh, was probably second to Athens alone for its uh, religious temples or sacred shrines. If you looked around in ancient Corinth, you would see dozens and dozens of of temples and structures and, and altars devoted to various Greek and Roman gods. They were everywhere. Now, this may be kind of hard to understand for us 21st century Westerners, but the meat industry 
in Corinth, if you wanted to get a steak, red meat, the meat industry was inextricably entwined with religious ritual and sacrifice. I actually wrote a paper at Duke about evidence for non-sacrificed meat, just regular meat. And the evidence, friends, was scarce. It was rare. (laughs) Basically, what would happen in the ancient world, they they didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have freezers, they didn't have Ziploc bags and vacuum sealing. And so what they would do is, on a certain day, they would sacrifice an animal, typically a large animal, a cow or a goat, to one of the various gods in Corinth. And so they would cut the throat of the animal and take the vital organs and burn those organs up before a statue or an image of the god in the temple. This, though, left hundreds of pounds of choice meat waiting to be consumed, and they weren't about to waste this food. So the priests, the archpriest, and some devoted celebrants in the temple would have a meal, a solemn meal in the inner court of the temple. Also, the restaurants of antiquity were attached to the temples, or at least adjacent. And so the leftovers from that meal were sold and consumed at these restaurants. Anything left over from there was brought to the local meat market, the Makellum. And after excavations of Corinth, we have discovered a large Makellum in the city. And so if you'd go to a friend's house or a banquet at an association gathering, they'd have food, they'd have meat. And this meat, friends, wasn't really labeled. You wouldn't know if this meat came from an animal that had been sacrificed to Zeus, Hermes, Ares, Jupiter, etc. So imagine you are among the Corinthians. And you're used to eating meat, used to going to these restaurants, networking socially, politically, economically, going to these banquets, having meals at friends' houses. And then you come to know Jesus. What do you do about this food issue? That's what the Corinthians asked Paul about. So if you haven't already turned there, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Hopefully that situates the issue in its context. You can go to the blank slide, Eric. And like I said, the Corinthians had sent Paul a letter to which he responds to the particular issue of idle food in this passage. 1 Corinthians 8, uh, it's on page 956 of the Pew Bible, and I will be reading from the ESV, 13 verses, starting at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there exists one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The word of the Lord. This is Paul's solution, at least the beginning of his solution. It goes on through chapter 10. This is Paul's solution to the Corinthians' question about this issue. As we'll see in detail in a moment, there were two camps in Corinth. There were two positions, two ways of thinking about this issue. It seems that that the one group who was okay with eating food offered to idols, let's call them the the tolerant, seems like they were wanting Paul to say, this view is right, this one's wrong. Just become like them or become like them. They're asking Paul about this issue, what do we do? And this is his solution. So because of time, I'm not going to look at every single detail of every verse, but there are a couple things that I want to note in this brief passage. But just keep in mind the social context and the actual request that is behind this passage. So let's look first at at the first section, the first three verses in our text. Paul immediately says, now concerning food offered to idols. All throughout 1 Corinthians, you see now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. And then he talks about marriage, sexual immorality, the resurrection, who you were baptized by, things like that. He's clearly responding to particular questions. This signals that he's about to talk to them about their question about idle food. And this is the first thing he says. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. And this is in quotation marks in the ESV. It seems like this was a slogan that was said by some of the Corinthians, especially the the tolerant. Paul is thus citing their slogan, but he's not disagreeing with it. And he's using the first-person plural, we, and so he is identifying with it to an extent. He goes on. He says, knowledge, however, puffs up, whereas love, agape, love, builds up. He's clearly juxtaposing knowledge with love, and puffing up with building up. Now let me unpack these words a little bit. This verb for puff up has to do with uh, the, the enlargement, I guess, or the, the exaggeration of one's own self-importance, one's ego. 
The best image for this is that of a balloon. You think about the more you look inward and the the more you brag about your own self-image, there's an inflation that happens. And so it looks like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but there's nothing real inside. And if it gets too big, you know what happens with balloons, right? Knowledge, individual knowledge, puffs up. It inflates. Whereas love, this is the word agape, selfless regard for the welfare of the other person. Love, this is the word for to build a house. It constructs. It edifies. It builds something that will profit others. It builds an edifice that others can live in. It, it constructs the community. It has an outward focus. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Right away, then, Paul, it seems, is addressing the tolerant, the ones with knowledge, and we'll talk about them more in a moment. He's addressing them, and he's saying, you know, your knowledge isn't meaningless, but it needs to be tempered by love. He goes on to say that if knowledge is all you have, it's not going to accomplish its purpose. It's not true knowledge. But if you love God, you not only can know others, but you are known by God. The only way for knowledge to accomplish its purpose, to do good work, is when it's coupled with love. That's the first thing Paul says. Well, let's talk briefly then, in verses 4 through 6, about what it is that the tolerant know? What is this knowledge of which Paul speaks? He again identifies the issue, the eating of food offered to idols, and he says, we know, the same language from verse 1, we know that an idol doesn't really exist. He goes on to say that for us, there's really only one God in existence, and that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the Lord Jesus. What Paul effectively is saying is is that the knowledge on which the tolerant base their actions to eat the food still is correct. It's not wrong. He says, you know, I I understand where you're coming from. Those idols, the gods, the statues, they're not real. They're fake. In a way, then, it really doesn't matter. You're not actually committing idolatry. Their knowledge is technically correct. All right. Now, in verse 7, though, we see that the tolerant, these knowers, as they're sometimes called, were not the only ones in Corinth, okay? We have some others. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, namely this knowledge that those gods don't really exist, and thus that their actions of eating such food aren't actually wrong. It says some through association or through custom, through habit, aren't able to shake the associations between that food and idolatry. He says there's there's a group of people who are more sensitive to this, who, who if they were to do the same things that you're doing, they would be defiling their own souls. They would be sinning. They would be committing idolatry. You knowers, you tolerant ones, aren't the only ones around. Here enters the sensitive. So you can see the division between them. You've got this food that they're used to eating, and one group can't bring themselves to eat it, and one group can. And let's pay careful attention then to Paul's words in verse 8. 
Notice what he says. He says, food will not present us to God. The ESV says commend, but the verb is more neutral. It means to present someone before a ruler, either to be rewarded or to be condemned. Paul says food doesn't do that. He says neither if you don't eat. In other words, if if you are among the sensitive, you won't lack anything. You won't be any less. Neither if you do eat, if you're among the tolerant, will you be any more. In other words, Paul refuses to take a side. He says this way of thinking about the world, this position in this issue, and this position in and of themselves are equal in the sight of God. What he really says, though, comes next. And this will close out our exposition. What does matter in the sight of God is is not one's mental posture towards new things or old things, not one's openness or one's more traditional bent, no. What does matter, though, is when you insist on exercising your right and it harms the soul of the other person. Paul says, I think to the tolerant especially, take care, in verse 9, take care that this right of yours, which you actually have, it's based on correct knowledge, take care that this does not become a stumbling block to the weak. He says, if someone saw you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, wouldn't his conscience being weak being vulnerable, be tempted to commit idolatry? Paul says the weak person, the sensitive person, would would perish on account of your knowledge. The sibling for whom Christ died. Your, Your brother, your sister. He says sinning against your siblings and striking their conscience, it's the same word used to strike Jesus, before he was crucified, striking their conscience, you'd be sinning against Christ. That matters in the sight of God. When we insist on exercising our freedoms that we may actually have theologically in a way that harms the soul, the conscience of the other, that matters in God's sight. And I'll tell you, God hates that. That is sin. Paul concludes with his own example, verse 13. And he says, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never, ever, 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 ever eat meat again. Double negative in Greek plus the phrase forever. It does not get more emphatic than this. I will never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. So that is Paul's solution, (laughs) at least the beginnings of his solution to the issue of idle food. You can read more about it in the next few chapters. Paul effectively says to the tolerant, temper your knowledge with love. I think it is no stretch to say that Paul implies in this passage that we need each other, that the Corinthians needed each other. That's what Paul really says, I think. And let me flesh this out a little bit. 
It's obvious that the sensitive need the tolerant. If the tolerant do what Paul's telling them to do and and are willing to give up their rights for the sake of the other, the sensitive will see played out before them a bodily recital of the love of Jesus. Regularly. That has an effect. Not only this, but having this group in their midst, this group that is able to make contact with, with things that seem idolatrous, but, but which, which views them as not really being idolatry, that they can protect, they can protect the sensitive, shielding them from things that they know would harm them. Protection. Also, however, having these people who are able to, to integrate the culture a little more into their faith, over time might help the sensitive to be just a little less sensitive, to still be sensitive, but to limit the chance of stumbling, the chance of sin. Not only this, but without the tolerant, without this group that's more connected to the world, to its conversations, its ideas, more open, I I would worry that the sensitive would, would slide further into seclusion, They'd become disconnected. There wouldn't be any contact with the world and they'd become radical or sectarian, not concerned with what the world needs. The sensitive, I think, need the tolerant. But friends, the tolerant need the sensitive. Having the sensitive in their midst forces the tolerant to temper their knowledge with love. Without the sensitive, their knowledge would puff, 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 inflate their own ego, forming them into radical social activists and revolutionaries. I've seen it. I've seen it. Having a group in your family that requires you to give up your own rights out of love forcing you to embody the movement of Jesus, that has an effect on you. It keeps the tolerant focused on Christ's agenda, not on their own social, political one. We need each other. I say it again because it's so true. The tolerant, the more open-minded, the more liberal, need the sensitive the more traditional, the conservative. Friends, this unity and diversity that I'm suggesting, governed by the love of Jesus, is absolutely, categorically opposed to the kinds of interactions we see in the world. It is. A community in which liberals and conservatives, not only politically, but in terms of mentality, not only exist together, but depend upon each other would lead to unimaginably profound results. It would. If we can be this kind of community, the church that I think Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be, the world would see Jesus as He really is. Maybe finally as He really is. They'd see the Jesus that did not consider divinity something to be held on to, 
but was willing to give it up out of concern for the souls of human beings. They'd see the Jesus who purposefully, deliberately targeted the outcasts, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, who composed a community that was purposely diverse, not flattening it out, but respecting it and celebrating it. They'd see that Jesus. We need each other, and the world needs us to need each other. Let's move First Baptist Church of Freeport toward that reality today. And for that, right now, let's pray. Lord God, we need you. We need each other, too. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be this kind of community. Help us, Lord, to show the world Jesus Christ. Be with us as we continue to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.